to take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 3. Keep them there and join me as we go to the Lord in prayer at this time. Father, we praise you. You are a glorious God, a sovereign Lord, a loving Father. We ask that you would enable our hearts, Lord, to be lifted, that our voices would be raised, all for your glory and only for your glory. We give you thanks today. Everything that we know has come from you. We are mindful of the endless displays of your common grace. Can any grace, Lord, can any grace come from your hand, be called common? We are grateful, especially for your redeeming grace. Even while we were vile rebels, you died to redeem us, drawing our hard hearts into your vast sea of forgiveness, clothing us with your righteousness, Forgive us, Lord, for our indifference, for our apathy. Your plan for the church is remarkable and miraculous. Defies, Lord, our ability to understand. To be rescued, to be adopted into your eternal family is truly astounding. We ask today that you would guard our hearts against losing the thrill and the joy of our salvation. We live in a desperate world, a spiritually dry world, a world consumed with hopelessness and without God. We plead that your Spirit will fill us each, that you will fill this congregation, that you will make this church, Lord, a city on a hill, filled with light, radiating your glory. Use us to advance your gospel to friends, Lord, to neighbors, to family, to strangers, here and all around this world. We pray that, Lord, we would see that this body is not for our comfort, but for your glory. That you would make your name great, pour through us your Spirit, and change the world around us. I pray for each family unit, that makes up this larger church family. You know every need. You know every concern. You know every sorrow. You know every joy. And I pray that you will show yourself to us, that you will shatter the status quo in our lives. May your Spirit strengthen us beyond our expectations. I pray that we will experience the vastness of Christ's love that you would do it for our edification and that you would bless this worship gathering and that you would do it for your pleasure and for your glory. For we ask it in Jesus' sweet name. Amen. Well, it's good to be back with you. I enjoyed observing from afar your worship for the last two weeks and appreciate fine job that Luke and Nathan did while I was away. I have a lot to live up to. Those guys set a high standard, but we're grateful uh, for their work here in this congregation. 
We had some time to be away. We had time to spend with family. And uh, like many of you, we enjoy being on those sandy shores around the sea and playing in the sand, burning in the sun, drowning in the waves, whatever it might be. But uh, one of the things that we noticed when we got there was there seemed to be quite a few jellyfish in the water. And um, one of those things that all of us will want to ask God when we get to heaven, why? Why jellyfish? Why such a benign name and such a loathsome creature in many ways? But we were trying to encourage the grandchildren and uh, warn them about the danger that uh, lurked in these jellyfish. They didn't understand. They never had one of those up-close encounters uh, with one of them. But my granddaughter was especially um, intriguing to me as she began talking about them, trying to explore it. And we wanted them to be warned, but we didn't want them to be afraid. And so she was telling me, and she kept talking herself further and further in this um, this. Um, mindset of, well, you know, I've, I think I've been stung by jellyfish. And I said, no, you haven't. She said, but I, I think really I have been. And I said, no, she, no, you haven't. And she said, well, why would you say that I haven't when I think maybe I have? And I said, because if you had been stung by a jellyfish, you would know it. You wouldn't be thinking you had. And you'll understand that by and by. Well, by and by came two or three days later. As I was sitting and reading on the beach, and I suddenly heard that unmistakable scream of her first encounter with a jellyfish. And as we uh, finally got her settled down, and were able to scrape away the stingers and, and um, get her calm again, and we had a chance later on to talk, and I said, Grace, do you understand now what I was trying to explain to you about you only thought you'd been stung, but you didn't really know? And she said, yes. <laughs> the difference between thinking you know something and actually knowing it is vast. That's kind of what Paul's talking about here in this section of Scripture. Lots of people think they know and understand the love of Christ. But Paul is praying for them these Ephesian Christians, and for you and I, that we might know what we think we know, but really don't know, because he says it's incomprehensible. But he's pleading that they might come to know more and more. Scripture tells us a lot about Christ's love. We see it written about in books. We've heard people talk about it, give their oral testimony. For instance, John 15, 12, Jesus said, This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. His love is clearly the standard for which we are to love one another. Just after that, he said, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. In Romans 8.35, we read, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? The implication is that Christ's love is strong and unyielding. We're unable to be separated from it once we've been grafted in to who He is. 
It's good and important to know what Scripture teaches us about God's love. It's important to hear others describe how Christ has shed His love abroad in their lives, how He has ministered to them and introduced them to His love. But Paul prays here for Christians to experience Christ's love. To experience Christ's love. Now, this is a little bit of a dangerous area to embark upon when we start talking about moving from the Word of God to some kind of experience. And I want you to hear that I am wanting us to be careful here that it's one thing for us to sell all the Word of truth and to embrace experience only. But it's also equally important that we understand that the Word of God points us to God and that God does, He does reveal Himself to us in an experiential way. I think that's what Paul is after here. Let's review where we've been in Ephesians through these first two and a half chapters. We've seen God's grand plan from eternity past. He factored in that man was going to sin and be separated from him, and God chose from before the foundation of the world to redeem, to reconcile, to set His special love upon certain people. Every detail was known and arranged before creation even began. We were dead in sin and without hope, and all those without Christ are so. But by God's grace, through faith, we are made alive with Christ. We see that the walls dividing humans are destroyed. God is making one new race in Christ. This new race is dwelling, is a dwelling place for God. It is a temple built with living stones. 1 Peter 2, verses 4 and 5 says, As you come to Him, a living stone, that is Christ being a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We saw in Ephesians 2, verse 21, in whom Christ, the whole structure, that is this dwelling place, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Now, living stones is quite a radical metaphor, is it not? When we think about stones, we know that they are inanimate. They're cold, they're hard, they're lifeless. But living stones implies something that is strong, something that is durable, something that's stable, and yet it is alive, very much animated. It's quite intriguing. In Christ, we are forgiven and declared just. We're declared to be righteous. We have the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. Therefore, we are acceptable. We are approved by God. But there's more to do yet. While the gospel means that we are in Christ, that we are fully acceptable to God, it's already done, and yet there's more to be done. There's more to occur. We are growing into Christ's likeness day by day. There's life, light, glory in these stones. 
They're living stones. And yet, that light doesn't always shine forth in the true beauty, the purity that it should. Think of some sort of opaque surface or substance that's blocking that light from being visualized outwardly. And being able to maybe go inside that stone and begin to clear away the opaqueness and make it clear so that the light shines forth without obstruction. We become more radiant and more glorious daily. This is God's design. This is God's desire. This is kind of where Paul's headed with this prayer about us being awash, being saturated and empowered by the love of Christ. This is the way that that opaqueness, the residue of this world and its sin, is moved out. And we become pure, so that the radiance of God, the glory of God, might shine forth in all its beauty. I remind you of a picture over in 1 Kings chapter 12, you remember David wanted to build the first temple and God wouldn't let him because he said, you've got blood on your hands, you're a soldier, you're, you have slain many men, therefore I'm not going to entrust this assignment to you. But David gathered the materials and God allowed Solomon to build the temple. And after the temple was completed, the scripture says that they brought, the leaders of Israel brought the Ark of the Covenant and they brought it into the temple and placed it there in the Holy of Holies. And that everyone left the temple and when they did, this cloud entered into the temple and the glory of God filled the temple. This is a picture of what God desires, designs to do in us and for us in Christ. 2 Corinthians 6 Verse 14 and following says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Now, Paul begins chapter 3 with this phrase, for this reason, for this reason. And then he interrupts himself, Nathan exposited this last week for us, he enters into this digression from what he was going to say, which was pretty common for Paul to do. But then he circles back, beginning with verse 14, to what he intended to say. For this reason. And this reaches back to the end of chapter 2 and all that has gone before. Let's look back to begin. I want to just read verses 18 through 22 in chapter 2. Hear what he says. For through him we both have access, both being Jews, Gentiles who have come to Christ, in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, 
built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And Paul says, for this reason, or because of this work that God has begun in us, I bow before the Lord, before the Father. He prays to the Father. And it's a glorious prayer for the Ephesian Christians and for you and me in Christ. He prays that they will experience the supreme love of Christ. His prayer is inundated and filled with significant emotion. Paul is overcome at this moment with just emotion. Kent Hughes offers a couple of explanations as to why Paul is so emotional at this point. He says that it's because the revelation given him by God is stunning. Paul has gone back and reviewed the incredible story that is the gospel, going all the way back to eternity past and moving through what God has done and how God has gone about doing it to reach down, to condescend, and to redeem those of us who are sinners who deserve judgment. And he's overcome by it. How beautiful it is to see a man go to his knees with because of God's Word, says Hughes. Secondly, the apostle's on his knees in profound emotion as he utters this statement or writes this statement before the Father from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Now, many of you, when you talk about memories or uh, your childhood or the family you grew up in, those precious things, you will be moved to tears. You'll be gripped by motion through your memories of how sweet those times were, the personalities, the people involved in your life that really worked so hard to display their love for you. Family imagery is not inconsequential. And yet, we live in a world where there are many flawed family images. A lot of people have family experiences that are deeply hurtful. They're scarred. Can't seem to shake those things. But Paul addresses the sovereign God as a loving father. A loving father. A perfect father. Full of justice. Full of love. God has gone to unimaginable lengths to rescue His chosen ones. Paul felt the power of this love, and it put him on his knees. He wants Christians. He wants the Ephesian believers. He wants you and I to experience this incomparable love of Christ. So let's unpack this prayer. It's not complicated, but it's intensely rich. I want to begin with what is an implied truth in this passage. And that is, first of all, that Paul knows, and you and I know this, that prayer is incredibly important. Prayer is incredibly important. It's a wonderful gift that's given to us. One that I'm not sure we appreciate 
as we should. Most people speak about prayer and appreciate the idea or the concept of prayer. Even non-religious people appreciate prayer. They're always willing to have someone pray for them. They'll hardly ever refuse if you ask uh, your most uh, secular neighbor if you can pray for them in a time of difficulty, they will always welcome that. They recognize value in prayer. However, most place the value in themselves. They look at this as something that encourages them that they are not forgotten, that they are not alone. It's, it's psychological. It's emotional for them. But they don't really put the premium in the essence of prayer as we should. They're comforted by someone simply remembering them. This makes them feel better. But the essence of prayer is something far greater than this. Verse 12 of chapter 2. Let's go back and read that together. Verse 12 of chapter 2. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, having no hope and without God in the world. We move all the way down. He says that we have, in verse... lost my place. Verse 18, for through Him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Access to what? We have access to the presence of God. Access. We have an open doorway into the presence of God. In Christ, we're able to approach sovereign God anytime, in any circumstance, and stay for as long as we may desire or need. It's true fellowship. It's communion. Our Heavenly Father wants to hear our concerns, our fears, our frustrations, our joys, our successes, our hurts, and our hopes. Many of you have someone, another human being, which you feel comfortable sharing the most intimate things of your life. Maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's a sibling, maybe it's a parent. Maybe it's a good friend. You know they care for you and are interested in you. And yet, all human beings have limitations. All of us have, we're not infinite. We're finite creatures. And so, we, we reach a, a roadblock at some point in time. But God, this is not true of Him. There's no hindrances. There's no limitations. He will listen with keen interest. This access is precious, not only because of God's presence, but because of the cost that it takes to provide it for us, which was the blood of Christ. You were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. God's Word continually reminds us about the importance of prayer. First Chronicles 16.11 says, Seek the Lord and His strength. Seek His presence continually. Matthew 7, 7 and 8 says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks, it will be opened. Luke 18.1, Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. 
John 16, 24, until now, he says, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16, rejoice always and pray without ceasing. Revelation 5, 8, and when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. God places a great premium upon our prayers. Jesus demonstrated the importance of prayer, frequently withdrawing to pray, withdrawing from the disciples, withdrawing from the crowds that he was ministering, giving up sleep, giving up things that his body needed in order to pray. Mark 1.35, and rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Mark 6.46, and after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. Luke 5, 15 and 16, but now even more the report about him went abroad and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Paul valued prayer. It's apparent when you read his letters. There is a certain mystery about prayer. We don't always understand exactly what the significance in prayer is. We don't pray to inform God. We don't pray to instruct or command God. Scripture teaches us that God is unchanging. So do our prayers really change God's mind? Do they change God's heart? He's immutable. So, but there is an effectiveness. There is an importance and a significance in our prayers. God says they're important. He treats them as important. He listens and values our prayers, and we are told that we do not have because we fail to ask. So there is some kind of connection to what God does in our lives and our praying and seeking these things. He wants us to ask Him for things, things that we need, things that we desire. We learn, grow, and mature through praying. Prayer is an important discipline in the lives of believers. It cultivates and nurtures our dependence upon God and our faith in God. You know, Paul frames prayer in a beautiful way here. I bow my knees, showing incredible reverence for God and personal humility before God. Before the Father, from whom every family, the redeemed in heaven and on earth, is named. Prayer is important. It's incredibly important. The second thing I want to show you is the focus of Paul's prayer. The focus of Paul's prayer, it's twofold. One, that Christians would be strengthened. He prays for their strengthening. He continues to stress God's wealth as poured out on the Christians. He began, you know, verse 6 of chapter 1. He says, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us. In the Beloved, one eight, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Verses 18 through 23 in that same first chapter, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness 
of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And He put all things under His feet and gave Him His head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. You say, well, what's he saying here? What needs to be strengthened? If the Holy Spirit indwells us, what needs to be strengthened? Well, if someone is sick, if someone has been weakened by infirmity or by some accident that happens to the body, they're not able to take advantage of all that life has to offer, are they? They have limitations due to that illness, that weakness. God's children need strengthening to receive all the blessings that God has for us, spiritually speaking. A paper bag is not sufficient as a container for fine china, is it? You wouldn't wouldn't transport your fine china in a paper bag. You don't pour concrete into a plastic bag. It simply won't hold it, will it? It's not built for that purpose. We do not have the ability to stretch and strengthen ourselves. So Paul prays that this strengthening be according to God's riches, according to God's attributes, according to who God is and what God prepares, wants to do in us, what He prepares for us. If Elon Musk walked in here today and put $5 in the offering plate, Would you be impressed? No, you wouldn't be impressed because he would be giving that $5 out of his abundance of wealth, out of his billions and billions and hundreds of billions of dollars. But if he put a $100,000 check in the plate, we might say he's giving according to the worth that he has, according to the abundance that he has. God is infinite in his riches. And now we're not talking about, I'm not talking about material wealth here. We're not talking about God who has a cattle on a, a thousand cattle on, a, on hills or a thousand hills filled with cattle. We're not talking about material things. I'm talking about who God is in His essence, the attributes of God, the holiness, the grace, the love of God. He is infinite. Love, kindness, justice, peace, power, goodness, faithfulness. Out of these riches of His essence, He grants the strength that we need. I mentioned concrete a little earlier. It's almost as plentiful around here as just ordinary dirt, isn't it? You used to hear about Georgia clay. Uh, I grew up in North Carolina, just across the Georgia border there, and we used to hear about Georgia clay. I never quite understood what that is. I've come to believe that it's another phrase for concrete. Because Georgia seems to have a corner on the market of concrete. Everywhere you look, there's concrete. I would love to own a concrete business, wouldn't you? Roads, houses, businesses, walls, they all use concrete. If you dump it on the ground, it becomes a nuisance. It becomes an obstacle, doesn't it? Keeps things from growing, it's in the way, and you have to break it up and remove it in order to make anything productive. But if you prepare a strong form 
If you prepare a strong, suitable, proper form, it's beneficial and purposeful and enduring. And this is what Paul's saying about us as believers, that God may strengthen you internally, that God may strengthen you to receive all that He has for you, all the things He wants to invest in you, that He might prepare you so that you can receive these. Give us the capacity to receive His blessings and fruitfulness. It reminds me of what he wrote to the Corinthians when he said, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. It's being strengthened. It's growing each and every day. The Holy Spirit orchestrates the endowment of the strength which is freely given to us according to God's riches. We are renewed and empowered for life even as our bodies grow older and weaker. So he's praying that the Christians here would be strengthened. Secondly, he's praying that the Christians would be empowered for God's love or by God's love, by Christ's love. Be empowered by this supreme love that Christ affords us. Paul prays that they will be rooted and grounded in love. Now we understand the importance of root systems. I was telling Craig earlier this morning how good the landscaping is looking. I appreciate so much the work that he and the, and the property team have put in in changing out some of the old and putting some new things in place. And he said, just make sure it gets watered. Why did he say that? It doesn't need water, does it? Well, what do I do? Take a bowl of water out there and set it on the ground and, and wait for it to drink? Is that the way you water a plant or a tree? No. Each, each form of life, plant life, has a root system that goes beneath the surface. It goes down in the ground. Why? To absorb nutrients and moisture that are necessary for life. But not only does it do that, it also brings stability to that plant. It takes hold of the soil in which it is, so that it's not easily blown or knocked aside. Psalm 1 describes a righteous man as one who is planted by streams of water like a tree that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Paul prays that the Ephesian Christians will be rooted, what? In Christ's love. In Christ's love. Not a fickle affection like is common in our world, but in the love of Christ. The love that moved Him to condescend from heaven to this earth, take on flesh, live among us, and just give His life as a ransom so that we could be forgiven of sin. Agape. A genuine, deep-seated, and powerful love. Christ's love. Grounded simply means to be established. Greg was telling me to water this morning because the things that have been placed out there haven't become established yet. The roots haven't necessarily made a, a solid connection with their surroundings yet. But that's the goal, is for it to become established taken hold of 
by the soil and taking hold of the soil. Like trees. You know, this, this is actually a mixed metaphor that Paul uses here. He's talking in agricultural terms. He's talking about being rooted. And then when he talks about being grounded, he's talking in architectural terms. Like a foundation. Like trees, our lives need roots deep and wide in Christ's love. And like buildings, our lives need solid foundations of love. Now, you may be a new follower of Christ and not be yet established. Are you a longtime follower but not yet settled fully into Christ's love? Paul's prayer is that you be rooted and grounded in His love. That everything that sustains you will flow from this rich love. The soil where we, where we plant is so important. If it's hard and rocky and compacted, it's not fertile for growing, is it? But where it's rich and well-watered, filled with nutrients and moisture, it becomes fruitful. A solid foundation of Christ's love that is unshakable. Not only is this the way to fruitfulness, it's also the way to righteous living in a broken world. The path to righteous living in this world is being grounded and established in the love of Christ. Now, if I had a balloon here today, and I might could do this, but I'm sure Tommy could, I could push air from my lungs into that balloon and it would grow, wouldn't it? It would fill up. Why? Because it's empty. It has nothing in it. The only resistance there is the strength or weakness of my own capacity to push the air into it. But now if you rolled one of your inflated tires off your car in here today and said, Pastor, continue to blow that tire up. I couldn't do it, could I? doesn't matter what kind of contraption you have to hook me up to it. I can't do that. Why? Because it is filled with air. It's already full of something. No matter how hard I try, I can't push any more into it. This is the way it is to be filled, to be rooted and grounded in the love of Christ. So that the things of the world we don't have an appetite for them because we're full of that which is already the best available to us. Christ's love is incomprehensible, yet Paul prays that we might comprehend it, that we might grasp its dimensions. Width, length, height, depth, these are poetic expressions for the infinitude of God's love. Kids were playing on the beach last week, and I'm thinking a little bit about this text. Mostly I'm on vacation, but sometimes I'm thinking about this text. They're playing in the ocean. They're having fun there in the water. And it hits me, they have no idea how vast the sea is, right? They have no concept that what they're dabbling in right there on the edge actually covers three-fourths of this planet. No concept. And yet, this is what the love of Christ is like for us, is that we seem to be satisfied sometimes just dabbling in the edges, not understanding how vast 
the love of Christ is. How deep and wide and high it is. A.W. Tozer described God's love in this way. He said, because God is self-existent, His love had no beginning. Because He is eternal, His love can have no end. Because He is infinite, it has no limit. Because He is holy, it is the quintessence of all spotless purity. Because He is immense, His love is an incomprehensibly vast, bottomless, shoreless sea. Don't you want to know more of this that is incomprehensible? Yes, Lord, help us to understand better your love. Samuel Rutherford from prison in Aberdeen wrote, Love, love, I mean Christ's love is the hottest coal that ever I felt. Oh, but the smoke of it is be hot. Cast all the salt upon it, it will flame. Hell cannot quench it. Many, many waters will not quench love. He prays that we be strengthened. He prays that we be rooted and grounded in the love of Christ. And then he prays that these Christians might be filled with the fullness of God. Filled with the fullness of God. To be filled with the fullness of God is an amazing thought. It's been said that this is the fullness with which God fills Himself. What does it mean? Colossians 1.19 says, For God has, was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him, that is, in Christ. And in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10 of Colossians, he says, For in Christ all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form, and you have been given fullness in Christ. An illustration helps us wrap our minds around this idea a little bit. I'll go back to the beach. I'm sitting there watching my grandchildren, watching other children, lots of kids on the beach. Nobody goes to school anymore. And there was a little girl. She was about two. So my wife tells me. She's an expert in these things. And she was waddling. She had one of those little beach hats, you know, down, pulled down, and She's waddling back and forth. All the other kids are playing. She's kind of on her own, right? And she's going back and forth from where her family was sitting all the way down to the water's edge. And she had this little, little container. It looked like about the size of a measuring cup. And she would waddle down, and she would fill it up. And then she would walk back toward the family, and she would pour it out. And, of course, she was sloshing over and everything, but I watched her repeatedly. I mean, this went on and on and on, and she kept filling that cup. Now, in that cup, she had the fullness of the sea, but she didn't have the fullness of the sea. Does that make sense? She had the fullness of the essence of the sea, but she didn't have the fullness of the quantity of the sea. And that's what Paul's talking about here, that we might be filled with the fullness of God, the essence of who God is, all the attributes of God, this love that is vast and infinite before us, that we might know this love, though we can't contain it all. Christ was, he was infinite. He was able to contain all the fullness of who God is. 
But when one of us finite creatures dips our life into Him, we instantly become full of His fullness. We can always open and hold more and more of His fullness. The more we receive of His fullness, the more we can yet receive. I think eternity is going to be like this. The continuing elevation of our souls into the fullness of who God is. Integrated more and more and more and more into His fullness. Paul prays for these Ephesian Christians and for all Christians. For us to ascend this majestic heights of Christ's inexhaustible love. That we might be filled to overflowing that we might be overwhelmed, that we might know the, even the emotion that He's experienced in all this fullness of Christ's incredible love. That we not be vulnerable to the lures of this weak and fallen world, but that we be strong and effective, fruitful, filled with the fullness of Christ, becoming truly the image bearers of Christ in this world. How is it possible? Well, if you're here today and you don't have a relationship with Christ, you still are in your sins, depending upon your own efforts, trying to climb your way to God, trying to earn your way to God. Then the only way this is possible is for you to repent of your sin, to experience the forgiveness that Christ has purchased for you at Calvary. To come to know Him, to be known by Him, grafted into His family, adopted into His family. If you're here today and you're in Christ, you're a Christ follower, but you've never quite settled into the fullness of Christ's love. You can pursue and seek this. Paul is praying for you that this might be true in your life. So I would encourage you to join in his prayer and say, Lord, I want to seek to know, to taste, to savor, even to be full of this love, this supreme love that Christ has for us. Commit to swim in his marvelous word and drink from the well of his truth. Surrender to his indwelling power and his strength supplied by His Spirit dwelling in you. Plead with God to fill you with His fullness. Would you pray with me this morning? Our Father, we thank You so much for Your love for us. We do understand how incomprehensible it is. We can, only, we can only skim the surface, it seems. Only touch the tip. And yet we know, we know because you tell us so, that there's so much more. I pray that, Lord, today the sweetness of the tip might drive us deeper, might cause us, Lord, to desire with all of our heart to know more and more and more of the fullness that is You. To revel, Lord, to be saturated in Your love, to experience Your love in a way that we've never experienced before.
Do it, Father, for our edification, sanctification. Do it so that we might be reflecting, showing, displaying your glory in an effective way in this world. Do it, Lord, that our hearts and minds might know the contentment that is available to us in you that shrinks and shrivels our desires and affections for the things of this world. Do it for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.